I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. September 17th is Constitution Day, the anniversary of the signing of the U.S. Constitution in 1787. In celebration of Constitution Day, we devote this episode of We the People to profiles of two of the most influential figures in shaping the Constitution, James Madison and George Mason. If you had to pick two figures to exemplify the fundamental debates over the Constitution and whether or not we should have a Bill of Rights, Madison and Mason seem like a good place to start. And we have convened uh, two of America's leading scholars on Madison and Mason to help us understand whose constitutional legacy and ideas were most influential and how they differed and how they complemented each other. Colleen Sheehan is visiting scholar at the University of Colorado Boulder and professor of political science at Villanova University. Professor Sheehan is the author of many books, including the superb James Madison and the Spirit of Republican Self-Government, which I recommend so strongly to We the People listeners, and the forthcoming Cambridge Companion to the Federalist, co-edited with Jack Rakoff. Professor Sheehan is a member of the National Constitution Center's Madisonian Constitution for All Commission and has written about Madison in the media in a soon-to-be-published and very illuminating essay. Colleen, it is wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. I'm always happy to do anything with the National Constitution Center and the work that you're doing there for civic education in America. I appreciate it. And Jeff Broadwater is professor of history emeritus at Barton College in Wilson, North Carolina. He is the author of George Mason, Forgotten Founder, which I just had the great pleasure of reading this summer and also so strongly recommend to We the People listeners, as well as James Madison, a son of Virginia and a founder of the nation. Jeff, it is an honor to have you on We the People. Thank you. It's an honor to be on the program. Colleen, I'm going to begin with a large question, perhaps the largest question in constitutional law, but I know you can help distill the essence of it for our listeners. We're here to contrast Madison and Mason. What were the core of Madison's constitutional ideas and what was the core of his constitutional vision? Ah, well... I guess if I had to summarize it as tersely as possible, I would say that his constitutional vision was about self-government, which included uh, uh, both liberty and stability. The idea that you need a stable government in order to protect the rights and liberties of the people so that they'll have the opportunity uh, to govern themselves. Uh, Madison thought that, that the history of the world was a history of, of humanity sighing uh, for the chance to be their own masters. And so right before the Constitutional Convention and in preparation for it, he spent quite some time writing up a piece called Vices of the Political System of the United States, in which he looked at the defects Uh, of the United States government under the Articles of Confederation. And his goal was to see if we could find a way to correct those defects, especially the problems of instability, injustice, and confusion, as he put it later on in Federalist Number 10. And so in correcting these kinds of uh, problems of 
of a government that split its powers between a central government and state governments, or what's called federalism, uh, Madison thought that if we did this properly, we could find a way for the first time in history for the people to really have a fair trial at the experiment in self-government. Jeff Broadwater, George Mason will be less familiar to our listeners. Tell us why many scholars think that he was among the most influential members of the Constitutional Convention. His Virginia Declaration of Rights both influenced Madison when he wrote the Bill of Rights, uh, as as well as uh, Jefferson when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Um, why was Mason so influential, and what was the core of his constitutional vision? Mason was one of the older delegates to go to the Philadelphia Convention, was already a major figure in American politics. He'd been an early leader in the uh, resistance to, to British uh, policy in Virginia before the American Revolution, as you mentioned, was the principal author of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which generally considered the first modern Bill of Rights, uh, also the principal author of the Virginia Constitution, which was one of the first uh, state constitutions. Um, and so he brings a great deal of res respect uh, and influence to, um, to the Philadelphia Convention. Um, and he's particularly remembered for raising the issue of the lack of a Bill of Rights. Um, he didn't sign the Constitution. He was one of three delegates who stayed at the end of the convention but didn't sign the, sign the Constitution. Uh, and uh, toward the end of the convention, really, I think on the next, the last day, he wrote a list of objections to the Constitution. And his first objection was that there was no Declaration of Rights. And I think having written the Virginia Declaration of Rights, gave him a, a great deal of credibility to, to, to raise that issue. And he goes on to become one of the uh, one of the, the handful of really impressive uh, anti-federalist leaders. He's a leader of the anti-federalists at the Virginia Convention that had been called to ratify the Constitution in, in Virginia. Um, and I would say that uh, uh, he um, his, his differences with Madison, his philosophical differences, weren't huge, but they were important. Uh, I think Madison thought that he could construct a national government that would that would um, be representative of the people, would act responsibly, would serve as a check on the state governments. Um, and Madison, or Mason, it's easy to get the two confused, um, Mason, I think, was just was less optimistic about that. I think he, he was more distrustful of government at any level um, uh, and sometimes we think of the anti-federalists as advocates of states' rights, as, as people that were simply um, uh, opposed to giving greater power to the central government, and there's some truth to that. But one of the things that was most interesting to me as I studied Mason's career, um, Mason was as concerned about corruption at even the, the county level as he was about, about the national level. I might want to talk about that uh, uh, later, but I think I think the different one of the differences between Madison and Mason was simply Mason. Mason did have more of a local orientation than Madison did, but he was simply more uh, pessimistic, I'll say, about the ability uh, uh, to, to create a government at a national, state, or local level that wouldn't ultimately become corrupt and oppressive. 
Fascinating. Um, and as you write in your superb book, like John Adams, uh, you say Mason feared a new republic could founder on unchecked individualism, transient popular majorities, and the inherent virtue of the marketplace, all forces that were sure to lead to corruption, as they had in Great Britain. And he, uh, Mason opposed the Constitution because he thought it gave too many powers to a popularly elected chief executive. Um, Colleen, let's begin to articulate what the what the major philosophical clashes at the convention were. And if the founders came to Philadelphia determined to create a national government strong enough to achieve common purposes such as uh, common defense and regulating the national economy, they also wanted to be constrained enough to protect liberty. Why don't you jump in and try to art articulate the main uh, differences and similarities between Madison and Mason when it came to those questions. And, and, and maybe we could start with the powers of Congress. Well, I think that um, Jeff Broadwater, Broadwater did a very good job in articulating Mason's view. I would only add that not only was he one of the older delegates, but he was one of the crustier ones, I think. I don't know if Jeff would agree with that. You know, maybe Mason and Elbridge Gary and, uh, oh, Let's see, who was a, who was a fellow um, who said, <clears throat> I may take a, a foreign power by the hand, to which Rufus King uh, responded and, and chided him that we were there to get a job done for the union. Mm. <clears throat> oh, it was, uh, it was uh, uh, Gunning Bedford, I think. Uh, an appropriate name. <laughs> Wonderful. I have, I, I have to ask, say another word about Gunning Bedford because he sounds so interesting. Ah, yeah. Well, he's from De Delaware. And in fact, his home now, one of my students from Delaware during um, uh, a break from the university went to find his old home and it's now a Masonic Lodge. Hmm. Uh, so I don't think tours, I mean, it's, 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 it, you can't tour it for um, its historical value, as far as I know, but I'm not sure I haven't been there. But Bedford was a, was a real interesting character, and I always thought he was appropriately named. <clears throat> I myself don't know too many people named Gunning. <laughs> right. Mason and Madison were both from Virginia, and in many ways they disagreed about uh, much of, of what needed to be done in the United States. Uh, they both came to Philadelphia uh, as part of the Virginia delegation, supporting uh, seemingly the Randolph or Virginia plan introduced by Edmund Randolph, then governor of Virginia, right early on in the convention. In fact, it was kind of a preemptive move. Uh, but some of the major clashes at the convention of which Madison and Mason, as well as others, of course, would be a part, had to do with how much power the national government should have and how that would affect uh, both the rights of the states uh, as well as the liberties and rights of the people. For example, um, the delegation from New York State composed of three members, one of whom was Alexander Hamilton, whom I'm sure many of your listeners will, will know a lot about, or, or at least be able to sing, sing uh, quite a number of songs about him. Uh, Absolutely. And then uh, Lansing and Gates. Now, <clears throat> Hamilton was one of the people very much pushing for the Constitutional Convention and a full-scale amendment of the Articles of Confederation. Whereas Lansing and Yates were cronies 
of then Governor uh, George Clinton of New York. And George Clinton was a big fish in the relatively small pond of New York State then. And they wanted to keep as much power as possible at the state level, uh, fearful that a national government would uh, really make them fairly irrelevant, which by the way, some thought was Alexander Hamilton's plan all along to make the states as mm, administrative units as fairly irrelevant compared to the Hercules that America would become. Now, where does, where does Madison fit into this? Many people think that Madison was pretty much a Hamiltonian in the 1780s. And there's, there's a certain sense in which they agreed very much on, on what needed to be done to amend the articles and to put the new fledgling United States on a firm footing. But I don't think Madison was ever quite the nationalist that Hamilton always was. Madison always thought there was a, a substantial and significant place for the states, uh, not just because of wanting to protect states' rights, but primarily because it was federalism was necessary to protect the rights and liberties of the people in an extensive republic. Um, it's interesting that, um, and Jeff will have more to say about this, that, that um, Mason too is also is concerned about too much power being given to the national government and the liberties of the people being in jeopardy. But I think for very different reasons than Madison thought. Well, Jeff, tell us more about Mason's view about the dangers of too much national power. Um, what, what were his concerns? He'd initially supported the Virginia plan, but at the Virginia ratifying convention, opposed ratification in part because Congress might make service in the militias unattractive as a pretext for establishing a standing army, and he objected to federal control of the militias. So what was it about congressional and national power in the Constitution that Mason feared? Well, and really to sort of follow up where Colleen left off, uh, I think there are, there are a couple of issues that, that that answer that question and illustrate one of his his differences with with Madison. Uh, one is an issue that uh, would sound pretty arcane or, obs or obscure to us. Uh, Mason believed that a two thirds vote of Congress should be required to pass laws regulating commerce or foreign trade. Um, he knew that or thought. That the north, the northern, the northern states would have a, a majority in Congress, and they might pass legislation that would, say, give a monopoly on American shipping to northern shippers. Uh, he and and the British had what they call the Navigation Acts, which imposed comparable regulations on on American commerce, and and Madison worried, or Mason Mason worried about that. Uh, Madison was not so worried about that. Uh, and I think uh, if I had to make a list of maybe Mason's top three concerns about the Constitution, one was the power to regulate uh, uh, commerce. Uh, I think um, uh, Mason supported a congressional power to regulate commerce. I think most people saw that was needed, but he thought it ought to require something like a three-fourths vote or, or uh, some formula would give, give the South a veto. Um, another difference, and this again, 
uh, it may seem trivial to, to listeners today, um, Mason thought that appropriation bills um, should start in the in the House of Representatives. That was the people's body. The people elected the House of Representatives, uh, and the Senate uh, should not be allowed to amend or alter uh, alter them. The Senate, of course, was selected by state legislatures, represented the states, um, did not directly represent the people. Uh, and he thought that what they call the origination clause is very important. Masson thought that was a fairly trivial issue. Uh, and then the big issue at the, at the convention, and this is less of a philosophical issue about state versus national power, had to do with the issue of representation. Uh, Masson, Masson believed um, very strongly that representation in Congress should be based on population. And, of course, the small states thought that uh, representation in, in at least one house of Congress uh, should, uh, well, representation should be equal among the states in at least one house of Congress. Um, and, and Mason was one of the few large state delegates that supported what became known as the Great Compromise or the uh, Connecticut Compromise. Uh, he saw, and I think this is perhaps ironic, he saw that if, if the delegates couldn't reach some compromise on the issue of representation, the convention would break up. So this delegate who ended up opposing the Constitution supported a, a compromise that allowed the convention to finish its work. Fascinating. Uh, you just identified these three crucial issues, the power of commerce, uh, the question of appropriations bills, which seems more technical, but has to do with representation in the Senate, and then broadly this question of representation, uh, all of which will prove to be central to the convention. Colleen, let's put on the table a few other differences between Madison and Mason when it comes to the structural constitution. Uh, how did they agree and disagree when it came to the powers of the president and the judiciary? Well, Madison went into the convention without a very clear idea of the executive. Um, and his, and except that in terms of the executive and the judiciary, he was in favor of what he called a council of revision. Uh, which he pushed for over and over again at the convention, but failed uh, uh, to get that passed, just could not get the support for it. That would have meant, had he succeeded uh, in doing that, it would have meant that after Congress, both houses of Congress passed a bill, that instead of it going just to the president uh, to sign it or veto it, it would go to this Council of Revision, which would be composed of the chief executive along with a certain number of members of the United States Supreme Court, maybe four, something like that. So that the council might be, you know, an odd number, maybe something like five. I've always found that interesting because of what effect that might have on judicial review, right? Would still the Supreme Court would have, I think, uh, appropriately, the power of judicial review, but would they be much less uh, uh, apt to exercise it since they really already had uh, members of their branch that really already had their say uh, in working with the council revision? So um, that's one of the interesting things about uh, Madison's view, I think, on the executive and the judiciary. Uh, Mason was one of the people who, when they debated the executive and, and 
they were the convention was all over the place about what to how to elect the president It is interesting because um, Mason started off in a, in a very different place. I think if he'd had his way, and again, he's concerned about about Southern interest and uh, sectional interest. Um, he, he he didn't push hard on this, but his preference was that the executive might be made up of. of one from the South, one from the Mid-Atlantic region, and, and one for New England. Uh, there wasn't much support for that. I, as I recall, I think Hugh Williamson of, of uh, North Carolina supported that. Uh, but there wasn't much support for that, uh, and it didn't go anywhere. Mason accepted the idea of a, of a, of a, a, a single chief executive, although he did think that the the president, as he came to be known, should have a council to advise him. The uh, the colonial governors, the state governors, all, often had advisory councils or sometimes councils with some real uh, power, uh, and that was one of um, uh, Mason's uh, objections uh, to the. To um, I don't think uh, I don't think that uh, that Mason had a very uh, clear idea of what of what the president would do or how the president would be selected when he went to Philadelphia. Uh, the Virginia plan uh, originally proposed that the, the national legislature would select the, the executive. Uh, I think Madison and probably Mason uh, decided in the course of the debates they wanted a president that was more independent of, of, the, of the legislature than that uh, and, and came to support the Electoral College. Um, Mason, again, was, was mainly concerned that, that Southern interest be protected. Uh, he really preferred or hoped that the convention would adopt a, a three-member executive uh, with a representative from the South, the Mid-Atlantic States, uh, and New England. Uh, there wasn't much support for that. I think Hugh Williamson from North Carolina supported it. Uh, there wasn't much support, though, for that among the delegates. Um, um, and uh, Mason didn't, didn't push it. Uh, he did want the president to have a, an advisory council. Uh, executive councils were, were common in the colonies and in the states. He thought that would be another check on the power of the presidency. Um, did not favor a popular election of the, uh, of the president. and came to accept the Electoral College. As I recall, uh, in the uh, during the ratification debate, that was not a major issue for from for Madison for Mason. 
Let's talk now about the judiciary. Uh, Colleen Alexander Hamilton famously predicted that the judiciary would be the least dangerous branch. Uh, Madison and the other Federalist most feared Congress as an impetuous vortex that would suck all into its voracious powers. But what was uh, Madison's uh, vision of the judiciary and contrasted with Mason, who uh, in opposing the ratification of the Constitution of the Virginia Ratification Convention said that the broad scope of the judiciary would not only render state courts unnecessary, it will destroy the state governments. Uh, uh, well, Jeff, I think there's a reason that Hamilton wrote all the Federalist Papers on the judiciary and Madison didn't. <laughs> uh, th this was something that Hamilton, the lawyer, um, and of course Madison was not a lawyer, one of the, the few who w uh, was not, uh, had given... Uh, quite a bit more thought to. Uh, as I mentioned uh, previously, Madison saw part of the role of the judiciary and the check and balancing role on legislation uh, as part of the Council of Revision. Uh, but he did not want either the president or the judiciary to have the final say. The final say was to be uh, of legislation, was to be Congress as the closest representatives of the people. And of course, um, uh, the judiciary is very far removed, uh, fundamentally sourced in the, in the power of the people, but very far removed from anything close to direct or even election by the people. Uh, so Madison did, because Congress was to be the most powerful branch of government, uh, that's where he wanted us to direct our efforts to check it. I think he, like Hamilton, was not as concerned uh, because the judiciary had neither, uh, you know, neither sword nor purse, <laughs> uh, which the executive and Congress did in fact have. Now, Jeff, if I could just say a, a, a couple words about something that, that um, our other Jeff has talked about, that is, Mason is concerned about Southern interests and, and protecting those interests. I find this very fascinating. Uh, Madison and Mason, both from the, the great state of Virginia, the state that will produce most of the presidents uh, for some time after the uh, establishment of the new constitution. But unlike Mason, who was so concerned about the rights of the state of Virginia, particularly the Southern interest. And we have to remember that uh, Mason and Madison were both slave owners, though both of them uh, said many times over, talked about their opposition to the institution of slavery. At the convention, when the, when the debate seemed to be over the small states versus large states, which took up, you know, basically two months of the life of the convention before we got to the great compromise on, uh, on July 16th. Uh, Madison at one point stood up and looked at his fellow delegates and said, you know, this, this fight, this conflict that's being expressed about the large states versus small states. That's not really what's going on here. The division in the country is between North and South. Madison recognized that the division, even in 1787 in America, 
had to do with the institution of slavery. And this was something he was very, very keen on trying to reduce, to alleviate the tensions of. I wonder what Jeff Broadwater thinks um, uh, Mason's plan would have done regarding that tension, uh, that conflict between the North and South over slavery. Fascinating. Well, we have two large questions on the table that I want to ask Jeff Broadwater. The first is Mason's objection to the judiciary. Why is it at the Virginia Ratifying Convention that he said that the federal judiciary was so powerful that it would destroy state governments and then tell us about the plan that Colleen Sheehan refers to uh, when it comes to adjudicating the interests of the North and South and what Mason thought he was trying to achieve. Mason was very concerned uh, about the power of the federal courts. Uh, He made that a major point in the Virginia Ratifying Convention. Uh, He was worried, or he he did argue, that the federal courts would swallow up uh, the the state courts. Um, Why he was so concerned, maybe a little bit harder to, uh, maybe a little harder question to answer. Uh, But, uh, I mean, the federal courts were given um, fairly broad jurisdiction, over, particularly over matters arising under federal law or over um, litigation between citizens of different states. Um, and he thought, he thought that was too broad a, a jurisdiction. And of course, uh, you know, federal law was to be supreme over state law under the supremacy clause of the Constitution. Um, and I think one thing we have to, to remember is um, some of some of Mason's concerns, some of the anti-federalist concerns would seem uh, almost maybe paranoid to us today. Uh, I mean, Mason, Mason was concerned that, that Congress, the federal courts, might just do some unreasonable, you know, unreasonable things, that, that perhaps uh, the federal courts would, uh, would just sit in Washington or in the, in the Capitol. Of course, Washington hadn't been founded yet. Um, and you'd have to go all the way to the Capitol to litigate a case. And it would be very expensive and, and disadvantage uh, uh, ordinary ordinary citizens. Um, but he did see the federal courts as a real uh, uh, threat. And we got to remember, in, in 1787, 1788, uh, the idea of judicial review was really not well established. Uh, the courts were just uh, really kind of beginning to, to assert themselves. I, I, I think you, you might almost say that while the Constitution was being written in Philadelphia, there was another constitutional revolution taking place in the in the states, as as as, as the courts became more became more assertive. Um, with regard to how Mason thought the issue of slavery uh, would be negotiated under his plan with, for example, the the three member executive, um, uh, I think I'm, I'm speculating here. Mason never really address the issue directly. But, uh, you know, Mason is living in, a, in, a, in an era where uh, slavery has not yet become the great moral issue. It's a, it's a political issue, as, as it was really well into the 1800s. Um, and I think that uh, Mason would probably say, if you pushed him on this, that if you gave the North and South, uh, you know, uh, roughly equal leverage, uh, they they would simply negotiate some some political settlement. Now, now Mason supported the end of the the, the end of the foreign slave trade. 
Uh, he never complained about the prohibition of slavery uh, in the um, in the, uh, the Northwest Territory. Uh, he was one of those founders who cons- I think considered slavery a necessary evil, um, and uh, was uh, you know willing to entertain the idea that at some point in the future, some point in the future, slavery could be put on a road to abolition. As you suggest, Mason was uh, critical of slavery, although a slaveholder himself, he believed that the slave trade was an evil that he could not condone. And the question of why he didn't free a few of his slaves as Jefferson did or free them all as Washington did, uh, you you raise and, and say is uh, difficult to answer. Uh, you write, Mason never seemed defensive about his glaring inconsistency. In all likelihood, Mason believed or convinced himself that he had no options. Uh, Colleen, tell us about the constitutional relevance of the debate over the future of slavery at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, What were the various positions and what was the meaning of the infamous three-fifths compromise uh, and what was Madison's position versus Mason's on this question? Ah, well, Madison was very clear throughout his life that he thought slavery was a moral wrong. In his notes on government that he writes uh, right after the institution of the new constitution, he actually says explicitly there that in the states in America where slavery exists, they're not really republics. They're not Republican. They are more aristocratic and oligarchic. And uh, the three-fifths compromise at the Constitutional Convention that was supported by so many of the delegates, North and South, was not a new thing. It was the compromise already made under the Articles of Confederation. It was one of the the mistakes that people make today is to think that the three-fifths compromise means that uh, those held in slavery were counted as three-fifths of a person. That is not at all what that compromise means. Uh, Madison is very clear that uh, that all human beings, including those held in slavery, black and white and any color, are full human beings. He talks about this in Federalist 54, for example, that those who are held in bondage are seen in the unnatural light of property when what they really are, of course, is persons. So what the three-fifths compromise meant was when the delegates from places like North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, uh, especially like Rutledge and the Pickneys, uh, pronounced to the convention that their, uh, the, the people of their states would accept the Constitution on, if would, would not accept the Constitution if anything was done to touch the institution of slavery. Uh, If the other delegates wanted Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina to be part of this union, they had to make some compromise on that. And of course they wanted to keep the union together because uh, allowing North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia to to, um, be a separate confederacy of sorts, would not have freed a single slave. The whole idea was to pull people together and work uh, uh, in the future towards the elimination of slavery. Or at least that's what many, many, many of the founders explicitly said. 
And they said it so many times and said it on the floor of the convention. You know, Governor Moore stood up on the floor of the convention. You can see him tall and, and flamboyant and stamping his peg leg on the floor and shouting that slavery is the curse of heaven. Uh, Rufus King says something similar. And you can just see people like uh, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and General Pinckney and John Rutledge maybe sort of shrinking in their chairs a little bit. They never defended the institution of slavery, Rutledge and Pinckney's, on the floor, but they did express the views of the people of their state uh, that they would not accept this constitution if if the institution of slavery uh, were abolished. Uh, they were absolutely clear on that. So um, the other delegates knew that if they were going to preserve the union, do anything about slavery in the future, there had to be a compromise. One other point on that that I think is interesting, what compromise means uh, for this was that they were not, they understood themselves as not compromising the principle. They were putting forth a practical way to deal with this issue, to keep the union together, so that uh, slavery could be abolished in the future. Now, Jeff, if I could just say uh, one more word on Madison's view of slavery, uh, his own personal view, why didn't he free his slaves? I th this involves some speculation. We know he didn't free his slaves. We also know that he had a spendthrift uh, uh, stepson that he was constantly bailing out um, for his younger wife, Dolly, Todd Madison. And I think that he was very concerned about uh, Dolly's future when he passed away, uh, her financial future because of the problems her son had presented. I think he hid from Dolly some of the debts he was paying for Dolly's son. Uh, because it pained her so much. Now, there is some speculation, Jeff, which is very interesting. I don't have any evidence for this, but it's one of those sort of, um, uh, I don't know if we want to call it rumors or uh, that, that's been passed down for generation upon generation. That is that Madison actually left a note that was read by others that had to do with freeing his slaves upon the death of Dolly. Um, is that true or not? There's lots and lots of speculation about that. But if it's true, either the note was destroyed or at this point we haven't found it. There's still many Madison papers out there that are yet to be discovered, I suspect. Because once again, this stepson actually took some of Madison's papers and sold them. <laughs> so we're still finding writings of Madison and putting those together. Wow. Madison papers yet to be discovered sounds very Da Vinci Code-like. And I know that every We the People listener will be waiting breathlessly for their publication. Jeff, tell us more about this paradox of Mason. On, on the one hand, among the Virginia delegates, one of those who denounced slavery most vigorously, on the other, a slave owner who didn't fail his, uh, free his uh, own slaves, and uh, tell us about his position on slavery at the convention. I think uh, Mason's 
position on slavery was very similar to Madison's. Uh, you could probably read a, a, a quote from, from one of them, and you might not be able to identify which one it, it, it came from. Uh, I think Mason thought slavery was a moral evil. Uh, he thought it was bad for Virginia's economic development. Uh, he thought it was bad for the character of whites to own slaves. Uh, he thought they learned uh, cruelty as, as, as slave masters. Um, but he never, never freed, he never freed his slaves. Um, this is one area particularly where I wish we had more of uh, Madison's papers. Uh, uh, Madison's published papers run to his dozens of volumes. Uh, Mason didn't make much effort to save anything. His published papers run to about about, about three volumes. But um, I, I I think that that Mason probably shared what was a, a common attitude. Uh, in Virginia in his day, Madison felt this way, Jefferson felt this way, that uh, that whites and freed slaves just couldn't live together. They were too different. There had been uh, too, uh, uh, too difficult a history, and they just wouldn't be able to coexist. And until uh, some way could be found to, to separate the two races, slavery was, was, was not practical. Uh, there was also, of course, economic in, in incentive um, Mason had, I believe, it was nine children that survived to adulthood. He didn't want to do anything that would that would jeopardize their their future uh, by by freeing his slaves. Um, but um, as far as specific comments during the convention or then later in the ratification debate, the one point that I can remember where I believe he disagrees with 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 Madison was the question of, of, uh, of some sort of federal tax on slaves. And I believe Madison says, and I think this is the Constitutional Convention, that he didn't like the idea because he didn't like admitting in the Constitution there could be property in men, which authorizing a tax on slaves would do that. Uh, and I think, and, and, and at, another, at another point, uh, Mason says, but, but not to tax slave imports would be the equivalent of a bounty on slaves. So, uh, they're, they're both opposed to slavery, but they disagree on the on the the, the way to uh, to to reflect that opposition. Now, when you get to the when you get to the, the ratification convention, um, Mason's position becomes a little bit harder to to maybe characterize because in one speech and basically in one breath, he criticizes the Constitution for not protecting slavery, and at the same time, he criticizes the Constitution for permitting the slave trade to continue for another 20 years because the Constitution said that Congress couldn't ban slavery for um, 20 years after, after it was adopted. And the only way I can reconcile those, I mean, you, you could say that was just political expediency, debating points. He's he's trying to, 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 to be able to <clears throat> sort of both um, slave owners and people who had reservations about slavery is that he was opposed to slavery, but he thought that uh, that if that the abolition of slavery should be left to the states. Um, again, he wouldn't probably wouldn't trust a northern majority uh, to, uh, uh, to 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 manage that process. Very interesting, and that would explain the apparent inconsistency between his strong statements against slavery at the convention and, as you say, his objection at the convention that it was not possible to tax 
slaves, which uh, interestingly contrasts with Madison's crucial claim that the Constitution should take no position on whether there could be property in men, and attributing that to his concern for states' rights helps us understand the tension between him and Madison. Let's turn uh, finally to the central issue that divided Madison and Mason, and one where Mason won, and uh, history thanks him, and that's the lack of a Bill of Rights. Uh, Colleen, this is a more familiar story to some We the People listeners, but why was it that Madison initially opposed a Bill of Rights but came to support it, and what was Mason's role in persuading him to change his mind? Well, Madison, of course, uh, was opposed to a Bill of Rights at the Constitutional Convention, but during the ratification debates with people like uh, Edmund Randolph and George Mason of Virginia, uh, persuading many of the people in Virginia, or perhaps reflecting their views, that there ought to be a Bill of Rights in the Constitution, in order not to undergo uh, ha- calling a second convention, which Madison thought would be a disaster, we'd never get a Constitution out of it, We were it was hard enough the first time, um, that he said publicly that he would support a Bill of Rights Uh, in the first Congress, should he be there, obviously, uh, elected as a congressman. And that's precisely what he did. Uh, Early on in the first Congress of the United States, Madison introduced a series of amendments that became known as the Bill of Rights. Now, why was he opposed to it to begin with and then agreed to it later? He explains himself on this. He was opposed to a Bill of Rights because he was very worried that it would mean that listing rights that you put then in the Constitution. These are the rights um, and liberties of to be protected in the Constitution, that there would be a presumption that rights not listed would be considered rights not protected by the Constitution, not protected under law. And so that that would be dangerous to the rights and liberties of the American people. He said that in Great Britain, government grants rights to the people. But in the United States, it's the opposite. It's the people who grant powers to the government. So all rights are reserved to the people and to the states respectively. So it's this idea of delegated or and enumerated powers, that any powers not given to the government, the government doesn't have, which is one of the reasons he wasn't so concerned about the judiciary, uh, because he didn't see them as being a sort of runaway judiciary that many people think the judiciary has become in the 20th and 21st century. Uh, like George Mason predicted and the anti-federalist Brutus predicted. Uh, they seem to have been right about that eventual, uh, ultimately. Now, um, so Madison thought that, it, though, if, if we were going to have a Bill of Rights, that what had to be done was to articulate these rights as clearly and comprehensively as possible. That's why there's the Ninth Amendment that basically says, don't assume that everything listed here are the only rights of the people. Um, So it's to make sure that we know that it's not government who gives people rights, it's people who give powers to the government. That is critical in the American constitutional system, Um, and it's part of um, a necessary part of what it means for the people to be sovereign, the idea of popular sovereignty. 
Uh, Jeff Broadwater, uh, Mason and the Bill of Rights, this is his greatest legacy. He championed it from the beginning. He said one could be written in a few hours at the end of the convention. All you had to do is cut and paste among the state declarations, which in the end is precisely what Madison did, drawing primarily on Mason's own Virginia Declaration as well as others. So tell us about Mason's vision of a Bill of Rights and why he thought it was necessary and what is the significance of his triumph on this question. Mason did raise the issue uh, toward the end of the convention. It's a mystery why he didn't raise the issue earlier. Um, and I think his timing was bad. I think by the time he raised the, the issue, a lot of the delegates were ready to, to go home. They'd been there for about um, uh, three months. Um, but of course, he was the perfect person to raise the issue because he'd written the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Um, and uh, he, I, I think he envisioned uh, really a, a Bill of Rights of, of sort of two parts. One would be a statement of um, fundamental political principles uh, that all men, I think, as he put in the Virginia Declaration, were born equally free and independent. Uh, they had a right to um, um, life, liberty, property, property, happiness, and safety, which, of course, uh, Jefferson took, took that language and became the second um, paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and then, then Madison wanted to, or Mason, uh, Mason wanted to protect certain fundamental individual rights, uh, probably most important, the freedom of religion, which is an issue that was very important to him, also important important to Madison. And we've been talking about Madison and Mason's differences, but uh, earlier in their career, they were they were political allies. And one of the issues they worked together on was to, was to expand freedom of religion in Virginia. Um, and so by 1787, uh, the Declaration of Rights or Bill of Rights has become something that most Americans expect to see in at least their state constitutions. And we got, got to remember before 1787 in the Philadelphia Convention, Americans had spent roughly a decade writing state constitutions. It was something people, people expected to see. So uh, Mason raises the issue, uh, gets no support. It's voted down unanimously. Um, and then uh, toward the end of the convention, he writes his objections to the Constitution. I suppose uh, it, it would have to be the first written anti-federalist document and he begins with this uh, complaint that there's no no declaration of rights. And it became the anti-federalist most, I think, popular argument against the Constitution. Anti-federalists had a lot of, raised a lot of issues. Uh, there were disagreement among the anti-federalists on, on different issues. But uh, there was a general agreement um, for the, on the need for, for a declaration of rights. And it put a great deal of pressure on, on Madison. Um, Thomas Jefferson, of course, is the American minister to France at this time. Uh, Jefferson writes Madison, tells him he thinks they should have added Bill of Rights to the Constitution. Uh, the Baptists in Virginia are raising the issue because they want federal protection for freedom of religion. Um, so he's under pressure from them. That becomes important when he runs for Congress later. Um, and uh, the Virginia Ratifying Convention, uh, after they voted to ratify the the, the, the Constitution um, uh, recommends a series of amendments, including amendments dealing with with freedom of religion. Uh, so, uh, as Colleen said, it, it's Madison that actually puts them together um, when he's elected to the first Congress. Um, 
and does really a remarkable job of pushing them through a pretty apathetic Congress. But it's Mason, I think, that, that, that deserves the credit for starting the, the, the momentum that led to the adoption of the Bill of Rights. Um, and I might add, uh, and I think Colleen did a, a good job explaining Madison, Madison's change in position, but I think one other factor um, in, in Madison's thinking when he gets to Congress, he realizes that the addition of a Bill of Rights will go a long way toward appeasing some of the more moderate anti-federalists and increase support for the new government and, and enhance its legitimacy. So he, he's got a number of reasons to, uh, to, 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 to change his mind and, and a number of reasons, as Colleen said, to oppose the addition of a Bill of Rights before the Constitution's ratified. Well, it is time for closing thoughts in this utterly fascinating discussion about Madison versus Mason and their influence in the Constitutional Convention. It's too simplistic, I think, to sum up this rich discussion into viewing Madison as the exemplar of federal power and, and Mason as the exemplar of states' rights. So I'm going to ask uh, you first, Colleen, to sum up in, in, in light of this rich discussion what the competing constitutional visions of Madison and Mason were. Well, I think for Mason, I mean, he does emphasize at, towards the end of the convention, why he does it in the beginning, I don't know. Maybe he just suspected that a Bill of Rights would be included in the Constitution. After all, uh, it was in Virginia and in most of the state constitutions. Uh, he is just adamant that that's a problem. And many, many, many other people in the United States followed him, uh, including delegates, Ed Edmund Randolph for one. Um, Elbridge Gerry for another, uh, that no Bill of Rights, no ratification of the Constitution. He just dug his heels in on that. It's interesting to think of that day, September 17th, 1787, that we now call Constitution Day, when all of the delegates, you know, met once again for the last time before they adjourned to sign a die at uh, uh, what we now call Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And they walked up to George Washington's desk to sign this document. But of course, there were three of them who didn't sign it. Elbridge Gerry, Edmund Randolph, and George Mason. What were they, what was it like for them when everyone else was celebrating? Everyone went to the city tavern afterwards, down on 2nd Street. What did they do? <laughs> they spent that whole summer from May until September 17th working, sacrificing to make this new constitution, but in the end couldn't put the John Hancock, as it were, on, on the document. Um, you know, it must, it must have been awfully important to them to have that Bill of Rights um, for them not to sign with their fellow colleagues and people they very much respected, including George Washington, uh, that document that they contributed so much to. The last thing I'd like to say in summary, uh, Jeff, is um, Madison's most known for the structure of the Constitution, the institutions, separation of powers, checks and balances. Um, some people call it uh, a machine that would go of itself. Once you've written this, um, it, 
the people and their character don't really matter because it's all these institutions and checks and balances that make for good government. That was not Madison's view. Madison thought that the character of the American people, what we believe, what we cherish, not just his generation, but for generations to come, we're always sort of uh, paying it forward, uh, that you can't have a republic without Republican citizens, that civic education, learning the tools of self-government was the most crucial thing. to not only have a republic, but as Franklin said, to keep it. Uh, This is the work, of course, for all of us, not just then, but for all of us today. Thank you for those eloquent final thoughts. Uh, Jeff Broadwater, the last word is to you. Uh, If you could sum up the competing constitutional visions of James Madison and George Mason, that would be wonderful. I think that, uh, and, and Colleen is right, and I think both uh, Madison and, and, and Mason recognize the importance of uh, cultivating uh, civic engagement and, and, and responsible citizenship. Uh, I think, and what, I think that, <clears throat> that Madison believed, though, that the federal government could serve a role as, as a sort of check on, on the states. Um, and I think that that Mason was so suspicious of of government at any level, I don't think that he had much um, confidence uh, in in any level of government to check another one. Uh, Madison in the the Federalist Papers and elsewhere talks about the ability of the the state's governments to serve as a check on on federal power. Um, Yeah, I don't recall Mason saying that. so he's much more suspicious of government uh, as a result, uh, wants to really impose more restrictions on, on the federal government. I think he'd impose more restrictions on the state and, and local governments if that you know, issue had been before him in a, in a state constitutional convention. But um, he, he wants to put more structural limitations on the, the federal government. I'll just give one example we hadn't had a chance to talk about. He was opposed to the federal taxing power. He thought that um, the states, uh, that Congress could, should, as they had done on the articles, requisition uh, funds from the states. And only then, if the states refused to, to, to satisfy the requisition, could they impose taxes. That's just one of, of several kinds of, of structural uh, limitations he wanted to put on the government, on the, on the federal government. Uh, but I would say that was a, that was a basic difference between, between the two. They both believed in the importance of what we might just simply call good citizenship. Um, but I think Madison um, Madison had greater confidence in, in the ability to, 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 to structure uh, uh, a responsible free government. I think Mason thought that uh, human nature being what it was, uh, fighting corruption in government would just be an ongoing problem, however the government was structured. Thank you so much, Colleen Sheehan and Jeff Broadwater, for a wonderful uh, Constitution Day discussion on the competing constitutional visions of James Madison and George Mason. You have helped us understand how both of these two patriots were responsible for shaping the U.S. Constitution on its birthday. Colleen, Jeff, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. 
Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. Uh, we the People friends, next week is Constitution Day. It's going to be an amazing day at the Constitution Center, including the launch of our new upgraded interactive constitution, this astonishingly rich platform for constitutional education and debate. I can't wait to share it with you. If you'd like to learn more about our Constitution Day celebration, including the launch, please visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash learn. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who's hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country and around the world who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, and happy Constitution Day.